so we're back, we're back in the book of Mark, and we, in, earlier in the year, we went through the start of the book of Mark in a series called The Jesus Movement, and as, if you were around at that point, you would know it, pro- it took us a long time to get there. This is like the never-ending series. If you, like, die at Harbor City, like, uh, we probably still will be going through Mark at some point because it just feels like it's taking us so long. But we, we back in, in the book of Mark and we in at the kind of the end of chapter 3. And one of the things about the book of Mark is the book of Mark is calling us to look at Jesus. Jesus, the the King, Jesus, the Lord, it opens up. This is the book of of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is telling us about Jesus. This is the big idea of the book of of Mark, and he wants us to know this that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised King, the promised Savior, the promised Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. This is what Mark wants us to know. He basically wants, to know that, wants you to know Jesus is a really big deal, and we should take note of him. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, a very kind of like brief thing of Mark. But now we, we get to this passage, um, which is, in one sense, quite a complicated and difficult passage. I mean, who, if you listen to that passage, or maybe you've read it, maybe you read it during the week, there's probably a whole bunch there that you're like, whoa, that is wild. Like, that is wild. Jesus' comments on his family, wild. Um, you know, then there's, there's like, the unforgivable sin, which if you've been like a Christian for a while, or especially in a charismatic church, you're like, yo, big question, is Jamie going to answer that today? I hope so. No, I probably won't that much. Sorry, guys. But it's a, it's a very wild passage, and it's about insiders and outsiders, and I'll try and explain what I mean by that uh, now, but you know, when, when I first became a Christian, I, I was in kind of just ended high school, going into varsity, and um, I went to varsity at UKZN. And my parents lived uh, around Durban, we lived in Pine Town at the time. And so, I you know, I, I stayed at home, I was one of the people that stayed at home while I was uh, studying, and um, I was. Be- I'd become a Christian, and I was kind of like learning the, the ways of Jesus, even though I had been brought up in a broadly like Christian family. But I, I, you know, I, I owned it for myself. I was learning the ways. I was, uh, um, you know, my, my heart was like set on fire by the message of Jesus. And this began to impact my own value system. It began to impact how I was living. Like the, the ways of Jesus had captured my heart. And so now my values were changing. The way I was living was changing. And all of a sudden, I found myself at points at odds with the way that I had been living or the, you know, even at odds with my own family at times, even though I was brought up in, in a Christian home. And I know I've probably shared this story once before, but one point was 
that my mom got remarried, and when my mom got remarried, kind of like the culture of our home slightly changed. So for, for the most part of my like early childhood, I was brought up by my grandparents, and uh, we, we would always have dinner around the table, and you weren't allowed to watch TV during dinner. And then my mom got remarried, and then we would have dinner around TV. So whatever was on, and at that time, there was a thing called Mnet Open Time. Who's old enough to remember that? <laughs> Mnet Open Time, Simpsons, or whatever it was that, that, that was on during that. You'd wait for, like, I think it was 6.30, which was like the great slots. And then 7 o'clock on SABC3 was like, Touched by an Angel, Murder, <laughs> She Wrote, um, Early edition, I think it was, uh, those kind of programs. And so we would sit and we would, you know, watch in front of the TV, which was all fine. But then something happened. It was called Big Brother. And Big Brother came on. And, uh, uh, you know, Big Brother was on TV. And then, I mean, it was crazy because just after open time, I think on Big Brother was if I remember correctly, it was like the shower hour, which there wasn't any like nudity, but it was like all like, you know, implied. And this was like really messing with my Christianity. Like it's this early kind of thing. I've like really felt convicted. So what I did is I was like, guys, I'm sorry. I can't actually eat around the TV. So I went and sat at the table with my back to the TV and started eating. It was very weird. Um, but it was like my little protest of, of like this kind of like culture that had like developed in our home that was like really messing with my own kind of faith. And at that point, I found myself being an outsider even in my own family. In my own family, I found myself feeling like an outsider. And my own family would make comments. Oh, Jamie, what are you doing? Are you better than us? And you're like, oh, it's not, like, I just, I just can't do this. Like, um, but they would make comments, why are you doing this? Jamie is so silly. You can still hear it. Like, what do you want me to do? I didn't have noise-canceling headphones then. But, you know, it... I think one of the things that remind me of is that sometimes, because of our faith, we find ourselves being outsiders in places where we should be insiders. So in our own families, for example, we can find that because of our faith, we find ourselves feeling like an outsider. You may find yourself feeling like an outsider amongst your friendship circles. You've come to Jesus. Jesus has been changing your heart. And all of a sudden, like your value system, your desires, something has begun to change. You go to church, etc., And all of a sudden, you find yourself feeling a little bit like an outsider in a space in which you felt like an insider. Could be at your work. It could be in your own culture, in your own class, in your own race group. It could be in any kind of space where we get a sense of group belonging. You find yourself feeling like an outsider in a space in which previously you had found yourself 
at home with. But people don't just find themselves as outsiders in spaces because of their faith. Sometimes we feel like an outsider in spaces just because of who we are. Sometimes we just feel like, hey, who I am, who I've been created to be, who I just find myself naturally being, just I always feel like an outsider in all these different spaces. Sometimes there are vices that grip us, that force us to be an outsider. It could be an addiction, that because of an addiction, you find yourself as an outsider. A drug addiction has driven you outside of all these spaces in which you found yourself at home. It could be alcohol. It could be gambling. It could be that you've just become, as when he mentioned Brad talked about, a compulsive liar. And because of your compulsive lies, you find yourselves, you found yourself now being an outsider. This passage is about outsiders and insiders and the tension around the two that hopefully we will cover. And at the end of the day, I am hoping that some of this will speak to you and draw you into the place that God wants you to be. And the, my big idea that I, I hope to leave you with today is this, is that it's better to be an outsider who is in than an insider who is out. It's better to be an outsider who is in than an insider who is out. And I'll try and explain that by the time we land. But I asked Summer, my daughter, to draw me a sermon burger, which will come up now, this is a sermon burger. That's my daughter drawing a hamburger. And basically, this passage is going to talk about outsiders, a parable, and then insiders as we go through, through this passage. It's going to talk about outsiders, a parable, and then insiders. And uh, let's hope that as we talk about that, that this will, will help you. But Jesus finds himself and the Jesus movement growing. The Jesus movement has grown off the chain. Like, people are all over the place. You know? Now, they are wanting Jesus wherever he goes. When it says here, it says the crowd... Uh, when, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. If, if you look at quite a few translations, what it says is Jesus entered his home. So Jesus has gone home, basically. Jesus has gone home, and there's a crowd that's gathered. Like, you know, they're not even respecting Jesus' privacy. Maybe he's come home to eat, because they mention eating there. Jesus has come home. Maybe he was hungry, but the crowd have gathered. They're like, Jesus, we need you. The crowd has gathered so much that he is so busy with ministry stuff that he doesn't even get an opportunity to eat. And then what we see is the first time Jesus' family and the religious leaders who 
are normally in one sense at odds with each other. Jesus and the religious leaders or Jesus' family and the religious leaders, you would think they're normally at odds with each other. In this passage, we see them united, united against Jesus. The family says to Jesus, Jesus, you are out of your mind. Jesus, you have gone crazy. Jesus, you have lost it. You're not even able to eat. You're not even able to come home. Jesus, you have gone crazy. We need to sort you out. And the religious leaders are like, yo, something's going on. But don't worry, guys. We're going to control this. Jesus, you are a liar. You're a liar. What you are saying is not true. What you are doing is actually you're deceiving people because you are false setting people free by Beelzebel. It's like, you know, you are not of God. You're of the devil doing this work. So they're united in their attempt to try and control Jesus. The insiders, the family, the institution, the religious leaders, the people that have come from Jerusalem, the insiders have now seen Jesus as his movement as a group of outsiders. And they are a group of outsiders because who are the people that come to Jesus? What, what does the, the passage tell us? They are the people who are being set free. And when you see the people being set free, they're often lepers, outsiders. They're the man tied up in chains in a cave because he is filled with demons. The people that come to Jesus are the outsiders. And the family and the religious leaders are trying to label them like, hey, you know, this is not of God. This is not right. Let's bring some order and some control. And what Jesus does is he tells them a parable. And what's interesting about Mark as opposed to Matthew and, and Luke, the, two, the other two gospels that have parables, is that Jesus tells them a parable that is different from the first parable that he normally tells, which is the one Tabani will cover next week, which is the parable of the sower. That's normally the first parable that gets told. But in Mark, the parable that gets told is the story, the first parable, the parable that's going to set the tone is this parable about a house divided. When Jesus says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Jesus tells this parable. It's this contrast of kingdom. It's this contrast. It's, he's using these institutions of kingdom and home. He's talking about this power of, of uh, uh, you know, Satan. And then he talks about this strong man. And what Jesus is essentially saying is he's saying this, he's saying, hey, you know, 
Satan's not divided here, guys. Because if he was, this is all going to fall. But it's not going to fall. And what he's essentially saying is he's saying he is the stronger man. He's saying this, there is one who has come who has tied up the strong man. And guess what he's doing? He's plundering the enemy's home. He is bringing the captives of the enemy out and setting them free. He's telling this parable about himself as the stronger man to answer their question. But one thing I find really interesting about this passage is in verse 21, it says this, it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. I don't know, like, in the moment, maybe that sounds like normal, but like, now that we know Jesus, and you think his family went to take charge of him, like, how ridiculous is that? Like, imagine trying to boss Jesus around. You, you just can't, like, imagine it. Like, here's the king of kings, the lord of lords. His family is like, Jesus, get in line. He's like, I'm Jesus. Like, his family have come to take charge of him. They have come to exercise their control over him. They've come to put him in his place. They're probably embarrassed by Jesus. They're probably feeling like, hey, Jesus, what are you doing here? You're making life in our area a little bit uncomfortable. So Jesus, you are out of your mind, so we are coming to exercise our power, the power of family over you to bring you in line. The family is trying to be the strong man. The one who uses its institutional power to try and bring Jesus in alignment to it. My question for us, or the Pharisees, who are using their institutional power to try and discredit the legitimacy of what Christ is doing. My question for us this morning is what acts like a strong man in your life? What, maybe because of your allegiance to Jesus, you find yourself at odds with different areas of your life. And are those things trying to flex their institutional muscles in one sense to get you to be in line with it? Do you find yourself, in one sense, constrained Because something is trying to bring you in alignment with its values rather than the values of Jesus.
Sometimes this is family. Sometimes this is our culture. Sometimes this is our friends. Sometimes it's just the rubbish we consume on social media that is trying to discredit your walk with God and is trying to bring you in alignment with its own value system. It is, in one sense, trying to stop the work of God in your life. What is trying to lord over your life that is not the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a passage about Jesus, the stronger man. The stronger man who comes to bring liberty, freedom. You know what's interesting about this passage? Is the Pharisees don't deny that Jesus has set people free. They don't deny it. They just want to delegitimize it. They don't say he hasn't cast out demons. He hasn't liberated people. They just say he's done it illegitimately. Jesus is the stronger man. The King of kings, the Lord of lords who ultimately through his death and resurrection not only breaks the hold of our sins, but he even breaks the hold of death itself. Now there's one part of this passage that um, all the theologians say that if you do not get offended by it. It's only because you live in the 21st century. But if you lived in Jesus' time, you would have been so absolutely radically offended by what Jesus does at the end of this passage. What happens is the family comes and they're outside the house and they call, uh, send someone in to go and say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know, your family wants to talk to you. And then Jesus says this, which theologians say is so absolutely radically offensive that the people at that time would have felt so unbelievably uncomfortable. When Jesus says, who is my family? I mean, can, can you imagine that? I mean, I... I wonder if my mom would be offended by that. She might be a little bit. But like in that day, for Jesus to say, who is my family, in a culture in which the family institution, the unit was absolutely central to it, the value for family was unbelievably high. We, we live in a culture where people move away to go and study. They move away to, and live in different parts of the world or different parts 
of, of the country away from family. In that day, you never moved from family. Your survival was dependence on your family. You would take up the family business. Jesus would be a carpenter because Joseph was a carpenter, etc., etc., etc. Like family was unbelievably important and central. In fact, they always name themselves after their family. What was it? Simon Bar Jonas or you know Bar, son of. Uh, you know, it's it's naming themselves after their their father. I'm the son of this person. To for Jesus to say, Who is my family? Like everyone's like, oh dear, what is going like? Jesus has lost his mind. Confirmed, Jesus is crazy. Tick, you know, like, done. We know now, this is over. The, this ministry thing has lost, Jesus has lost the plot. Get the guys, get those like, I don't know, what do they call them? Like jackets where you tie Jesus up. Let's tie him up, let's constrain him. Let's take control of him. Let's put him away. He has lost it. What happened? Uh. It was unbelievably radically offensive. But Jesus is instituting something new. He's instituting a new kingdom as we've already heard, a new family, but ultimately, he's instituting a new identity for the people of God. The outsiders now find a space where they can be inside. You know what's radical about this story? why it's important to know that Jesus went to his home is because when the family wants to come and see him, they're outside. They don't even come in. It means that Jesus is not just offending them with that statement. They are already offended by Jesus. So much so that they won't even enter their own home to come and speak with him. Jesus must come out to them. The insiders have cast Jesus out. But Jesus has instituted a new inside in some ways. A new family, a new kingdom, a new identity. Who is my family? And he looks around. Who's in their home? Who's inside the room? This is my mother and my brother and my sister. In John 4, Jesus, John tells us the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. 
some of us will know. But Jesus goes to the well and he sends his disciples out to go and, and get some food. And they leave Jesus at this well and they go out to get some food. And it's around the middle of the day. And this woman comes to draw water at the middle of the day. Now, you would never come to draw water at the middle of the day unless you're an outsider. You're an outcast of the community. You're not in. You've, you've lost your social standing. So Jesus meets with this woman who's come to draw water and ask for living water, ask for water. And she, she says, why do you ask of me? Like, how would you ask? Do you not know who I am? Like, I'm an outcast. How, like, how could you ask of me? And Jesus offers her living water. And she was an outcast because of her situation. She was married four times, living with someone who wasn't uh, her, her husband. She, because of either the promiscuity of her life or whatever it was, had found herself an outcast in her own community. And what does Jesus do? He invites her in. He offers her living water. He offers her grace and redemption. In Luke 15, we, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal sons. And we know the parable of the prodigal sons from the son whose vices, whose addictions, whose ambitions have driven him outside of the family home. He's taken his wealth. He's run away. And he's gone and lived a debauched life. But he gets to a point because of famine and brokenness and loss. He gets to a point where life gets the better of him. And he realizes that he had a loving father. So he goes back hoping that the loving father will just let him be a slave. Because being a slave of the loving father was better than being outside of the home. But when he arrives, what happens? He meets a loving father who runs out to meet him, grabs him, holds him, puts the best robe on him. Jesus is telling the story of an outsider who gets welcomed in. But the story doesn't end there. The story tells us of another outsider, the older brother, who, like the family in this picture, in this uh, passage, finds himself outside the home when the party is going on. He finds himself outside in the field. And because of his own jealousy, because of his own anger, because of his own self-righteousness, when the father goes to call him inside, he refuses to come in. Like this passage, the older brother ends up being like the family, outside the home, unwilling to embrace Christ's grace. Can I mention three quick points and then I'll close with one last story. 
three points for us to remember is this, Jesus is a stronger man. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what problem you have. I don't know what you feel is holding you back. Jesus is the stronger man. He is the one that liberates us from all the, from sin and evil and oppression. Christ is the stronger man. Number two, freedom is found inside the house. Jesus institutes a new community. It's what becomes the church. He institutes a new community. And that community at its worst in history has been like a strong man holding people back from God. But that community at its best, as Christ has intended it to be, has always been a community of liberation. Freedom is found inside the house. It's found in Christ. And then finally, the question is, which is the question that Mark always poses. You would have heard us talk about this over and over in the first part of this series, is where does your allegiance lie? Where does your allegiance lie? And ultimately, Jesus is asking you for everything. Does your allegiance lie to family? What Jesus is saying is he trumps the institution of family. Does your allegiance lie to your own culture or to your own class or to your own grouping of people that you found yourself in? Jesus is calling us for everything. He is asking us to come inside the house. Maybe I can make one comment about this and then I'll finish with this story. But, you know, the question of the unforgivable sin, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Like that has been such a big question that people have had throughout the ages. Um, What most theologians will say is like... (laughs) You know, it, it could be hyperbole in one sense. Like Jesus is using something so radical to warn the Pharisees that they're on the edge. Um, what it certainly doesn't mean is that someone who's having a bad day and says something blasphemous to the Holy Spirit, like they're out, never to come, like done, And it certainly doesn't mean that. But what it almost certainly means is this, is that God is the God who forgives all sins in Christ Jesus. But those who continually resist Christ, who will not come inside, who resist and resist and resist 
What does Jesus say? No one can come to me. No one can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit first draws them. Those who look at the work of God and continually resist it and reject it are those who end up outside the home. And those who end up outside the home end up in a place where forgiveness does not exist. Because forgiveness only exists in Christ. Can I finish with this story and then we'll go? I want to tell you a quick story of a guy in church history that's called James the Just. James the Just, how's that for a name? Imagine that's your name in church history. When church history looks at you, they're like, wow, James the Just. Like, this guy is just. Um, so, James the Just, he, he is... One of the disciples who was part of the early church in Jerusalem. And when the early church was scattered in Acts 8, if, if you remember, Stephen gets stoned in Acts 7. Uh, Paul is, is looking on and he's giving approval. And all of a sudden, the religious system is all out against the church. What happens? The church scatters. It scatters. They go all around the known world. But there is a small group of people that's left in Jerusalem. And one of the people that is left in Jerusalem is called James the Just. He is not James, the brother of John. Not James Zebedee. James, uh, James the son of Zebedee. James the son of Zebedee is one of the first martyrs of, of the church. This is James the Just is not that James in, in case you are wondering, but he gets this reputation for being unbelievably ethical, which is why he's called James the Just. The community loves him, like loves him. Those inside the church, those outside the church. When when there is an uprising in Jerusalem, and uh, eventually, you know, the Roman Empire comes and pretty much destroys all that uprising, he is one of the people that gets martyred. And it says that when, what church history tells us, when he got martyred, both those inside and outside the church mourned that such a good man would have been martyred. James the Just. James the Just is the person in Acts 15 who is known to be the head of the Jerusalem church. When Paul uh, and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they go to see Peter and the apostles and then James gives the final charge. It's James the just, not James the son of Zebedee. This James the just who becomes the head of the Jerusalem church, who helps shape what the church will look like. It is this James who writes the book of James, not the apostle James. James the just writes the book of James, the book of James that calls people to consider the poor, to consider themselves, to worship the Lord Jesus. James the just was the person standing outside of the house, the brother of Jesus. 
But he sees Jesus at some point in his life. He sees Jesus not as being out of his mind, but as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he throws himself in. He gives himself in. He enters the house. Not as the judger of Christ and his followers, but as the worshiper of Jesus, his Lord. I don't know about you, but my brothers are never worshiping me. Like they've seen me. For James the just to radically shape his life around the person of Jesus who was his brother is literally mind-blowing. What encourages me about his story is that sometimes those who stand on the outside of the house, pea shooting in, cheap shots, being offended by Jesus, are sometimes the people that get a glimpse of him and then their lives are radically changed. The outsiders come in. As Graham said, the doors must stay open because Christ in his grace invites all to come and be in him. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you feel the tension of things trying to control, put their hands on you. You feel the tension of faith sometimes, what it means to become a follower of Jesus and how that sometimes shatters all those kind of institutes around you. Or maybe you're just a person who has never given your life to Christ. Jesus is the stronger man, the liberator, the one who invites you into the house, the kingdom, the family, into a new identity, the people of God. You are invited today, like James the just, who himself glimpses the divinity of Christ and gives his whole life to him. You are invited into Christ today. It is better to be an outsider who's in than to be an insider who's out. Christ always says that to be in him means you will feel out everywhere else. But the reality is, is that it's better to feel like an outsider in all the spaces in which you exist and be inside the house with Christ than it is to be an insider in all the spaces you live, but to be standing as a mocker outside of the house of Christ. Let us pray. Father,
We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that draws us to you in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made a way to break the power, the hold of sin and oppression and death that tries like a strong man to hold us to its own ideals. But I thank you, Jesus, that you are setting people free. And that even if we feel like outsiders, you have invited us into your home, into yourself. And I pray, Lord, right now, I don't know where, any, where people are at, but I pray, Lord, that you would give people courage to stand and live for you to make decisions for you, to give their allegiance to you and you alone. And I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to find themselves as disciples, as Christians, as followers of you, Jesus, that even today you would have gripped their hearts and drawn them to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Bless you all. Sabani will be speaking on the parable of the sower next week.